Hello, you're listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Trout. How many times have you had questions after the homily? How many times have you wished that Father had spoken on this topic or maybe that topic? And have you thought, wouldn't it be great to just sit down with the priest and talk about those things of the day that just didn't quite make it in the homily? Well, if that's the case, then this is the podcast for you. We'll talk about topics ranging from literature to politics, from church teaching to church architecture. If it's relevant to Catholics, to their daily lives, and their journey to heaven, it's on our agenda. Whether you're an every Sunday or a Christmas and Easter or a I can't remember the last time I went to Mass Catholic, we're here and we're here for you. Father Daniel Scheid is the pastor of St. Vincent de Paul Catholic Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. Well, Father Dan, welcome back to After the Homily. Great to be here, Chris. Great to be with you. you know, I think it's impossible for listeners to have missed in the news of late, at least in the Catholic news of late, this unusual word called synod. Um, and it seems to be coming up a lot. I have to admit, I don't believe I'd ever heard that word until encountering it recently. So I thought we'd spend a little time talking about that. I know listeners have questions, but maybe we could start from a real practical standpoint and what is a synod? So in the history of the church, a synod has been traditionally conceived as a gathering of bishops from a particular region to discuss the issues of the day facing the church, to come to some sort of, of clarification of ambiguities and resolution of various doctrinal or moral questions with the hope of the gospel being proclaimed more profoundly and the, the truth of Jesus Christ being proposed more vibrantly. Now, there have also in the history of the church been what are called diocesan synods, uh, and these synods would be convoked by the, the bishop of a diocese that would gather the priests, the lay faithful, also to discuss various questions of the day. But more often than not, those synods would be at the service of implementing decisions that have been made at, for example, a church council. So I'm thinking, for example, of the Catholic Reformation and a bishop like Charles Borromeo gathering a group of his diocesan clergy and lay people together to strategize how the decrees of the Council of Trent can be implemented. Sort of a practical gathering of how do we get something done that needs to be done. Right, right. Yeah, it, it, it rapidly gets <laughs> more more complex so in, in the present context, Pope Francis is using the term in a, in a new way, and he has proposed a kind of worldwide listening, both to people within the church and outside of the church, to receive feedback on what they're saying. And in principle, this 
this openness to try to expand structures of, of communication is good as far as it goes, but obviously the principle of subsidiarity comes into play here pretty quickly that the, the greater the, the, the pool of, of people being queried, the more challenging it is to discern what the meaning of the input is and, and the relative weight that should be given to the people making this input. Now, as a small business owner, I would think, listening, that you just described a focus group. Yes. <laughs> to help make a decision about a logo or about a campaign or about a new direction for an organization or a business. Yes. But in many ways, that's sort of what you're describing, isn't it? Yes. And Francis's vision, as far as I can, can discern it from the, the writings, from what he's communicated, is that he, he really sees this as an extension of what took place at the Second Vatican Council among the various bishops gathered 60 years ago to discuss the the state of the church in the modern world. And he wants this synodality, as he calls it, to be a a style, a, a way of being in the church that is to be open to what the Holy Spirit is is prompting and to be open to hear other people's experiences. So you use the word, and it's a strange phrase, but it's often referred to as a synod on synodality. Yes. So this refers to the gathering of various bishops and other people at various points in Rome to discuss this wider consultation, this this way of being called synodality. Yeah, it's a strange it's a strange word that we don't use that often. So the Holy Father opened the Synod for the entire church, the universal church, I believe in 2021, to extend to 23. Now I believe it's been extended to 24. But listening to you describe it and you reference the council, it also sounds like a council. So what is the difference if there is between a council, the Vatican Council, and a synod. Yes. So, for example, the Second Vatican Council was a gathering of the bishops of the church, along with various theological experts, various members of uh, the Orthodox churches, different ecclesial groups, various Protestants. And the, the purpose of, of the council convoked by John the Twenty Third and concluded by Paul VI, those two popes, was really to re-articulate the faith so that it could be more profoundly communicated, shared in light of the signs of the time in the, the modern world. And so there were various documents drafted, voted on, promulgated by the, the popes that sought to clarify teaching, in a sense to bring to conclusion some of the deliberations of the first Vatican Council, which was closed prematurely, concluded prematurely by war. And, and really the, the papacies of John Paul II and Benedict XVI, each in his own way, those papacies were really consolidations uh, and extensions of 
the Second Vatican Council explicitly. So, for example, the Catechism of the Catholic Church was meant to be a distillation of the church's faith presented in a popular style based on the teachings of the the Second Vatican Council. Yeah, interesting. So if the purpose of a synod is to listen and to gain feedback, so to speak, I think that tends to make people think, well, then there must be something needing feedback (laughs) or needing listening to. And it's been said in some of the writings that that it's to determine where the Holy Spirit is leading the church. I think readers would see that and think, well, does that mean we didn't already know? And does that mean that we ought to think about leading the church in a, in a different direction? Right. How do, we, how do we answer that? Yes, there's a fundamental ambiguity there at the heart of the whole proposal. And among various bishops in the church, this is becoming more and more explicit. And in a certain way, The majority of the bishops in Germany, following what they call the synodal way, so the the ecclesial structures in Germany. Which would um, be their version of the USCCB, essentially, correct? correct. So the the German Bishops' Conference, gathering all sorts of, of lay leaders, has moved very far along a process where they have now voted on various conclusions which are explicitly contrary to the Catholic faith. And as this will develop, there are going to have to be necessary clarifications that Pope Francis, up to this point, for a variety of reasons, has been reluctant to make. So various bishops of of the church, for example, the late Cardinal Pell, and in our country, Bishop Paprocki, have spoken very clearly and forthrightly on the fact that the synodal way, as it's been lived and and proposed, has fostered the development of deep confusion Mm. and has allowed various issues that simply aren't up for negotiation to be thought in the minds of people as being still up for negotiation. And these are the by no surprise, the hot button issues that the spirit of the age finds very difficult to understand. So the questions tend to focus on sexual morality. So for example, the indissolubility of marriage, what marriage is, the union between one man and one woman for life, the intrinsic disorder of sexual activity between two males, two females. And also, this has been given less press, but it's also quite important, the role of the bishop in relation to the Pope, in communion with the Pope, but the bishop as the shepherd of his own diocese, as opposed to being a a branch manager of, of what is decided in Rome. And so the Synod on Synodality has left it ambiguous what role the bishops as bishops are to play in some of the the final deliberations of what is permissible and not permissible. Yeah, so to be clear for listeners, in written documents of late, there were really four specific areas that blessing of same-sex unions, as you referenced. The one that shocked me, the normalization of lay people preaching. I hadn't read much 
about that, but it was in the document. Concrete improvements for intersex and transgender faithful. And then finally, request to re-examine the church's stance on clerical celibacy and women's ordination to round out sort of the list of hot button topics. Right. And in a certain sense, this is the wish list of (laughs) the 1970s. And here, Pope Francis has called many times, especially at the beginning of his papacy, for what he calls parhesia, for bold prophetic speech of, of simply speaking the, speaking the truth. And so in, in that spirit, as somebody who grew up in the church in the 1970s, who has lived through the papacies of John Paul and Benedict, it's clear that the primary theological reference points for Pope Francis had their theological vision first proposed in its current form in the 1970s. So I, I refer specifically to Walter Kasper, the German cardinal whom Pope Francis has commended as being uh, one of the greatest theologians. Also the late Cardinal Martini of Milan. And they proposed very clearly this path that would lead us in this direction. and. It just so happens to be contrary to what Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict have spent their entire Petrine ministry trying to clarify and solidify. So it it's a rather tragic development. And it's important that we pray for Pope Francis, that he rise to the occasion of protecting the apostolic tradition and of being faithful to the word of God. And in fairness to him, the need for multiplying structures of communication in the church, that need is is very great. But as far as I can see in my situation in my parish, the interest of my congregation is in being faithful to the, the truth of, of Jesus Christ. And that's going to involve a certain amount of culture, countercultural radicality. As it always has. Right? As it always has. And it is going to involve a certain prophetic witness against the spirit of the age. And it's profoundly unhelpful to be promoting people in the church, including bishops, who do not hold to the fullness of the apostolic tradition. So I'm referring to Cardinal Holerich of Luxembourg, who is on record, both in writing and in in interviews, is stating that the Catholic Church is teaching on aspects of sexual morality, including the grave immorality of homosexual actions, is, is simply wrong and, and is in need of correction. So at, at that point, we've entered the realm of, of heresy and, and that actually needs to be corrected by the, the Holy Father. Mm-hmm. And there are other bishops in the United States, for example, Cardinal McElroy of San Diego, who have also expressed similar judgments that have been called out by some of his brother bishops, most recently uh, Bishop 
Paprocki, who has brought up the the topic of of heresy on some of these points of Catholic sexual morality being publicly denied by shepherds who are consecrated to teach the truth about those as it comes to us from Christ through the apostolic tradition. So the next few years are going to be ones of, of intensity and, but also a certain amount of serenity because Christ will not let his church go under the gates of hell won't prevail against it, but it is, it is really going to require a great effort on the part of every single Catholic believer to study the Catholic faith as it has come to us. And that's in the conciliar documents that's in the catechism of the Catholic church. And it's most obviously in the word of God, sacred scripture and tradition. So in that sense, we, we actually don't have to worry about things hinging on certain votes by certain groups of people. And, you know, one thinks of the various bishops of England at the time of Henry VIII, there was only one who wound up remaining faithful in the end, Bishop John Fisher. None of the others was canonized. John Fisher maintained his fidelity to the end and and that's what we're called to do. But here we here we sit in the season of Easter and all over the world there'll be new pilgrims coming into the church at the Easter vigil. And this is confusing and if not, you know, troubling. Yeah, it's it's, it's scandalous. Cuz we don't think of it we're not Irish Catholics or American Catholics, we're Catholics. Right. And so I think it's hard for the novice Catholic, you might say, to think, well, is there going to be a German Catholic church? And Right. Yes. So in, in one sense, just looking at the, the span of recent history, and so we can even just say the, the past hundred years, for example, every single Christian group that has embraced these claims, so whether it's the ordination of women, which John Paul II solemnly and... <laughs> infallibly declared to be a theological impossibility, the Christian groups that have embraced the changes to traditional sexual morality, all of them are dying, mm. if not dead on the vine. Mm. So for example, the Anglican communion, which is actually no real communion at all, statistically may very well become extinct in our lifetime. And the, At the least in America, but maybe worldwide, right? Yes, and yeah. it will survive worldwide, ironically, paradoxically, in those countries, for example, the continent of Africa, where there's a more traditional, faithful understanding of the Christian faith. And so any attempt to cut people a better deal by shaving off elements of difficult truths, it it has it's predictable dead end to it. And so that can be its own reassurance to the people who are entering the Catholic church that the Catholic church cannot and will not become that. They can also, and again, with a certain irony, understand that for as important as the papacy is, it is not everything. 
and the papacy itself is subservient to the word of God mm. enfleshed in the person of Jesus Christ, you know, embodied and extended sacred scripture and, and tradition. And so the, the Pope simply does not have the authority to reform the irreformable. Mm. So the Pope is not some type of oracle on a tripod <laughs> similar to like the the president of of Mormonism who can get just get prophetic messages and and then send those out to the rest of the people like oh things have changed like we accepted polygamy up to this point but well and the uh, principle of, of papal infallibility would say that the church is in fact protected from that happening that the holy yes. spirit protects them. and and that the conditions for the infallible exercise of of the petrine ministry are are very circumscribed and, and it's it's not every airline interview it's not every document emanating from Rome that that is definitive and binding it's all at the service of the greater communion with and under Jesus Christ and and so the communion of the church isn't simply the majority of the democracy that happens to be physically alive at any given moment, it really is the great community between heaven and earth. So we, we share the same faith with the saints of thousands of years. And, and that, that's actually where our, our security is. I think we put far too much stock on the, the ephemera of communication, the the airline interviews and the <laughs> twenty four hour news even cycle. the books and yes, <laughs> the basics of the faith are are much clearer and and much simpler. You use the word uh, heretical or, or heresy, and I find that interesting, especially again thinking about new Catholics and this idea that I could disagree with you, and you've referenced disagreeing with your bishop. That's not heretical. It's not heretical to question a church teaching, but to proclaim as a member of the clergy that it's wrong, that's not the same thing as disagreeing or questioning, is it? So one of the most famous Catholic converts of recent times, John Henry Newman, famously said that 10,000 difficulties don't equal one doubt. And so the difficulties that surround the living, for example, of our embodied sexual differentiation as male and female, the challenges to, to living the good in that respect are, are many. But to simply conclude that certain actions which have been perennially recognized as seriously wrong in the church's language, gravely disordered to to simply say that you know we've we've arrived in the past few decades at some type of superior knowledge that has has just changed everything is is the height of arrogance <laughs> and is is actually profoundly unhelpful. Mm. Yeah, it makes me think of listening to some Protestant speakers sort of making fun of Catholics for using pre-written prayers, and the the contrary to that was. These are some of the greatest minds in the history of minds that have, that have put these words on on paper. Why wouldn't we use them? But the idea that you could think of something that's so unique and better than all of our forefathers—that is, 
pretty arrogant, isn't it? There's a great humility in realizing that we actually don't have to reinvent everything. I mean, I'll just give you a simple example. In the, the magisterium of John Paul II, his development of the theology of the body, which was an attempt to explain in a wider, deeper context the reaffirmation by, by Pope Paul VI about the impermissibility of artificial means of, of uh, contraception. His attempt to do that was a, a deepening of the church's tradition, and it's borne much good fruit. But the attempt in um, the current papacy to ignore that or undo that is really shocking and scandalous. And so, you know, John Paul II, on the very day that he was shot in St. Peter's Square in 1981, just before that event, signed the charter for the John Paul II Institutes Uh for the Study of Marriage and Family. So on that fateful day, this institute for the the study of the church's understanding of, of marriage and family, like, you know, sealed with John Paul's own blood for the institute that he founded to be reorganized, mm. firing tenured professors and taking on board people who don't share the church's full understanding of God's plan for sexual love and marriage and family is a really bad thing. <laughs> and I, I say this as somebody who studied at the John Paul II Institute. It, you know, it's, it's deeply discouraging. You know, it, it doesn't change the, the truth, but it, it makes it much more challenging for that to be proposed. And the, the happy news is that the teaching pontificates of both John Paul and Benedict have been serious and deep and fruitful. And I believe that we will see in our lifetime the even greater flowering of of those good seeds that were sown. I think that this most recent attempt to kind of revitalize certain theological trends of the 1970s, I think that that fruit is is dead on the vine. And I, I've read recently, as have you, I'm sure that participation in the Institute is dropping dramatically because of these changes that you reference. Right. And it was so renowned over these last years. Yeah. Also the Pontifical Council for Life mm. on, on the Family, that too has has suffered from some appointments. And and there is a sense in which Pope Francis is responsible for the appointments that he makes. And the people that he has appointed to key positions, just as a matter of objective record, don't agree with various settled aspects of mm-hmm. of church teaching. And that is going to need to be corrected. And I, you know, I, I'm just a pastor in Fort Wayne, Indiana. <laughs> I really take as a reference point Cardinal Pell, George Pell's prophetic witness at the end of his life. He wrote an article for The Spectator entitled, The Catholic Church Must Free Itself from This Toxic Nightmare. That article appeared January 11th, 2023. Mm. And it really spells out in a systematic way what actually needs to be corrected in the synodal way 
process. And, you know, we can hope and pray that, that that clarity will, will come. So fast forward towards the end of, of your priesthood someday, and I'm sure that I will be long gone to heaven by that, by that point. What are we going to look back and say about this period of time? I think this moment calls for radical prophetic witness, mm. nothing less. And if we do not stand up to the spirit of the age, it will crush us. And this is the time of martyrdom. And the word martyr obviously has at its root witness. And we have so much goodness and so many faithful people who have come before us. We, we stand on the, the shoulders of giants. And I think of people like Pope John Paul II, like Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, and I think of somebody like Cardinal George Pell. Mm. These are figures who are really reference points for the age. And in our own country, I think of the prophetic witness of somebody like Archbishop Charles Chaput, who was deliberately not made a cardinal <laughs> for his prophetic witness and other people who shared views closer to the spirit of the age uh, were. His books, Render Unto Caesar, Strangers in a Strange Land, Things Worth Dying For. I think he, along with the late Cardinal Francis George, would have been the, the most articulate Episcopal spokesman in our time of what the new evangelization requires, what the church's public witness, public square mm -hmm. entails. And the Lord doesn't cease to to provide those witnesses. And, and around each of those figures that I've mentioned, I, I think I mentioned five of them. And you can, I mean, you can throw in like Mother Angelica, Father <laughs> Joseph Fessio of Ignatius Press, who almost single-handedly saved, you know, Catholic media. <laughs> These figures, each of them has produced an abundance, a whole communion of persons dedicated to the forwarding of a positive, robust, deeply human understanding of what it is to be a, a pilgrim on this journey to the heavenly Jerusalem and to be faithful to Jesus Christ to the end. And you shall know them by their fruits. And I can think of any number of, of priests who attribute their priestly vocation to the witness of, of those people mm -hmm. that I've mentioned. And I think where we don't see that, so for example, in those countries in the world like Germany, where lifelong consecrations in the church are just in precipitous freefall, mm -hmm. the humility of Christians in those countries to look to places like Africa and study where the faith is growing and how fidelity actually costs something in worldly terms. I think that's where the, the major tectonic shift in our time is going to be. I don't consider myself in any sense whatsoever a culture warrior. <laughs> I seek to be with all my heart a good shepherd. Mm. I, wanna, I wanna lay down my life for the sheep. I want to smell like the sheep, as Pope Francis has so often 
reminded us that we must do. And I want to give them nothing less than the fullness of what Jesus Christ has given to, to his church. And the Holy Spirit is never working against Christ. The Holy Spirit is the love of the Father and the Son. And so this conflation of the Holy Spirit with the spirit of the age, there's a kind of apocalyptic <laughs> quality to it. And I, I do believe in our time that more and more of the choice is going to be unveiled. And I, I think that's going to be all to the good. I think what the church has suffered now for many decades in various ambiguities, the fact that things are coming to a head now, we've been made for this moment. And I trust with all my heart that the Lord will be faithful to his church. And we just need to be faithful to the apostolic tradition that has come to us and that is fully alive. Well, I can't think of a better message for those groves of new Catholics that are preparing to enter the church this Easter. And Chris, you know, my final word is welcome to the family <laughs> and every family has its dysfunctions <laughs> and its problems. And in a certain sense, it is the converts who show us <laughs> the riches of what we have. And you know, just even looking at the waves of people who've been received into the church in recent times, many of them former Protestant ministers, you know, like Scott Hahn, <laughs> foremost among them, the richness they bring and that they show us, they're on the cutting edge of, of <laughs> saying, don't give this up. Don't sell the birthright for pottage. So when I recommend an article like that of Cardinal George Pell for the newly received baptized in the church to read, and just you get that recommendation again, Cardinal George Pell, the Catholic church must free itself from this toxic nightmare, the spectator, <laughs> January 11th, 2023. This is the prophetic bold speech where we actually do have to talk about what's going on in the household and the voices of the converts on fire with the love of Christ and who at great cost to themselves have embraced the fullness of Catholic truth. I believe they should be in the front row for the shepherds <laughs> to listen to for what the Holy Spirit is doing. You know, myself, a convert, but it's been many years now, but just recently a young woman came up to me in a work setting who I know has had a rather colorful past. And she came up to me and sort of grabbed me by the shoulders and she said, you're not going to believe this. And I thought, probably not. What? And she said, I'm going to be Catholic on Easter. And when you said that, I just, I just thought of her face. And I, you know, I thought, you're right. I didn't really expect that. <laughs> but how many of us didn't expect to be brought into communion with Rome. And, you know, it's never been easy to be a Catholic, but it's always been great. Yes. Uh, and today's no different, is it? Yes. We haven't been promised comfort. We have been promised joy. And that's the power of delighting in what is good. And the fact that you, for example, have based your, your medical practice on fidelity to the church's teaching. It's another witness that the shepherds of the church need to study for understanding how the Lord's fruitfulness is alive in his church. You know, I think every time I come to Mass, especially on the, the busy Sunday Masses, 
and you see young parents with screaming children and anyone who has children knows how hard it was for them to get there. And then you see the elderly that are barely able to move with their walkers and their and their younger friends helping them, but they're all coming to the mass and they're bringing themselves there day after day after day. And there's a reason. I think we have to keep keep focused on that point, don't we? Absolutely. Well, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of After the Homily. I hope that as we enter the final week of this Easter season, you can keep focused on the things that really matter. I hope you'll plan to join us here regularly for future episodes. Are there topics you'd like to hear about from Father Dan? Do you have questions that you'd like answered? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at church at saintv.org and type after the homily in the subject line. Or you can text me directly at 260-450-8878. And please start the message with after the homily. And a special thanks for our friends at Redeemer Radio and Spoke Street Media for producing this podcast. You can enjoy an endless variety of amazing Catholic content by visiting Spokestreet.com. I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and thanks again for listening to After the Homily with Father Daniel Scheidt. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.